Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. We've just launched our Facebook and Instagram pages. Please follow us on social media to get the scoop on new episodes, behind-the-scenes photos, and information on upcoming programs. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Belanger of the Connecticut Historical Society looks at new research into the Chinese educational mission, a groundbreaking 19th century exchange program that created long-lasting connections between China and southern New England. In the early 20th century, the American ambassador to Germany invited fellow diplomats to watch a visiting American baseball team. When the American began to explain the rules of the game to the Chinese ambassador, a man named Liang Tun Yen, he was cut off by a polite, Mr. Ambassador, I think I know more about baseball than your excellency. In 1881, I was the star pitcher for the Hartford Orientals. What extraordinary circumstances allowed this late imperial Chinese national to so beautifully one-up his American counterpart? As a matter of fact, Hartford had a ball club in 1881 made up of students from the Chinese educational mission. By the way, they appear to have been pretty good, too. The Chinese educational mission, or the CEM, is the subject of a current exhibition at the Connecticut Historical Society. While the CEM has received attention from scholars in the past, this exhibit features for the first time translations of Chinese language original documents, which opens up whole new parts of the story. I spoke to CHS's Karen Lai Miller and to Henry Q, translator on the project, who tells us about his own personal connection to the CEM. So I want to start with Karen Miller, who was the lead researcher on this project uh, mounting the exhibition journeys, the story of the Chinese educational mission. So can you, and I know it's a huge story, but can you just sort of briefly for the listeners tell us what was the Chinese educational mission? The Chinese educational mission was a program that ran from 1872 to 1881. It was, it's attributed as a brainchild of Young Wing. Young Wing was a a Chinese student who came to the United States to study in New England. He graduated from Yale in 1854 as the first Chinese graduate of, as far as we know, a North American university. And with his experiences and, um, you know, memories of living in the United States, uh, after he returned to China, he embarked on this campaign to launch something like the Chinese Educational Mission, which would bring uh, students, meaning boys at this time, to the United States from China to study, presumably for a period of at least 15 years. And he was able to convince the Chinese government to fund and support this initiative after uh, like over a decade of uh, campaigning and advocating. You know, but the goal was to train students in uh, like American education and technology and sciences and math. And then in turn, these boys would return home to China and help modernize and uplift the nation. 
so Karen, the choice of Connecticut and Southern Massachusetts for the location of this mission, was it, does it seem to simply have been because Young Wing's experience was having been a student at Yale and this was a part of the country where he had contacts? Yes, it appears that Young Wing uh, chose Connecticut and Massachusetts because he himself had been educated um, in Massachusetts uh, in his younger years and then at Yale for college. And there was just a strong support and network base for him at Yale. And we find that many of the host families who supported these boys students uh, had connections to Yale. So the boys who came over here, um, they're quite young. They're average age about 12-ish? Yes. Okay. And so they, they lived not in a dormitory. They lived with host families in Connecticut. Like what, what's the range of where these families were located? Oh my goodness, all over. And, you know, Young Wing had this idea of placing students in more of the suburban towns and rural areas as well. He just thought that these would, uh, this environment would contribute to developing, I guess, perhaps studious habits. And he said, manly character, uh, you know, maybe avoid the corruptions of the cities. But, you know, there were some students who were placed in New Haven and Hartford as well. And yes, the boys did live uh, with host families, uh, becoming part of these families. They So the children range in age, you know, the ideal target age was around 11 and 12, but we see students as young as nine coming to the United States. And so they had their, you know, they had their formative years in New England. And the boys, they're attending, at least when they're younger, they're attending local schools, but they are coming into the mission is centered on Hartford because they're coming into Hartford regularly for specific lessons. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, I I would just marvel at it. Can you imagine (laughs) coming from uh, another culture and suddenly um, living with a new family and attending local schools and immersing yourselves in these new communities? And there is a strong desire on part of the Chinese educational mission to uh, cultivate these boys' uh, connections to their Chinese heritage, as well as, you know, make sure that they continue with their Chinese educational studies as well. So in addition to studying uh, at local uh, schools, private and public, they would travel to Hartford occasionally to make sure that they were still taught by Chinese teachers and uh, practicing, you know, Chinese uh, cultural traditions too. How do we know so much about the Chinese educational mission? What are the sources and artifacts that are left behind? This was an amazing, innovative, incredible adventure in so many ways, an adventure that was based on a hope and a dream of young wings. And uh, and then all of a sudden we see support in the United States and from the Chinese government. So when we think about how remarkable this mission is, it was written about. So we have documentation from even just American newspapers who would track the boys' movement, you know, as they uh, you know, went through, they rode the Transcontinental Railroad, which was only a few years old in 1872. So as they crossed the United States, people, newspapers will report like Chinese boys, you know, stopped at our town or went through nearby, et cetera. So there is national press and interest in the boys' lives. So some boys, so the program ran uh, shy of the 15 years uh, it was planned for, but nevertheless, the boys lived here amongst uh, local families and attended local schools. So places like Hartford Public High School has 
their own archive of uh, CEM, Chinese Educational Mission Materials. We have families, host families who have donated materials. And Young Wing lived here for a number of years. So I think in various archives in the state hold his items. We at the CHS are very fortunate to hold items from the boys themselves, including, uh, I mean, really wonderful touching materials like their friendship and autograph books. We have photographs, clothing, uh, letters, diaries. So a truly rich way of understanding and getting a glimpse into this, um, you know, really innovative and exciting program. Yeah, I think this is not only part of the Chinese uh, American history, but it's also part of the Chinese history. Because I get to know this topic from uh, mainly starting from mainly from a Chinese perspective. All the material I read before about Yong uh, Rong uh, Wing, or in fact, I know him by Rong Hong, which is the the same character but pronounced in Mandarin Chinese, which I speak. He had also learned about the Chinese educational mission, you know, from uh, the documentary, from uh, you know history books, and also from reading the literatures. That are published by scholars both in China and Taiwan, and because because the his, historical connection between mainland China and Taiwan, you know, uh, this is actually a part a topic that has been extensively studied and researched. Yeah. So Henry, how did you come to become part of this particular exhibition about the CEM in a museum in Hartford, Connecticut? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you made that journey. Um, to, to to be here speaking with us today. That was really a beautiful coincidence. <laughs> so about three years ago now, I was I, I was graduating from the PhD program at Rutgers University and heading to Boston to assume my new, new position at my current company, Indigo Ag. And on my way from New Jersey to Boston, I stopped at Hartford, which is like the midpoint, you know, after two hours drive, you know, I, I stopped by and uh, it, somehow I thought of uh, uh, Wing or Ronghong because his family cemetery is actually outside of Hartford. So I went to visit his family cemetery because uh, uh, he's essentially the pioneer of all the Chinese students, you know, that came, that, that, that come to the United States to study. So I figure I need to pay tribute, you know, to his family cemetery. And then, then as I was uh, ha- grabbing lunch over there, I was thinking, uh, maybe I should just kind of, you know, look into uh, local, you know, libraries or museums to see if I can find anything related to him. And then this is how I walked into CHS and then talked with Karen <laughs> for the first time. And then I was like, you know, do we have anything related to Yongwei or the Chinese educational mission? And she said, we have a box of letters and documents you can take a look at. And that's how, you know, everything started to unfold. You know, I was so touched by the stuff I read because I feel like I am one of them, except I'm late by 150 years. So I started asking questions, you know, has any work been done to it? You know, we need to somehow preserve and translate those materials because they are all uh, in Chinese. And then trying to make it uh, known to more people, you know, globally. And that's how everything started to unfold. And that's how we got this uh, exhibition. So Henry, you 
I mean, I, first off, I love the story that you just happened to stop by. And if you had not done that three years ago, you know, this exhibition would not have happened and we would be missing some really important parts of the stories because it's in translating these letters that were written by the students that we get their perspective. I mean, they are the most important players in this story and to get their perspective is just so important, right? So tell us a little bit about, you know, what were some of the difficulties in translating these letters? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Well, first of all, although we both, we all speak Chinese, but apparently the Chinese languages have changed so much over the past 150 years. Different dialects has evolved as well, uh, as most of the boys speak Cantonese uh, and I speak Mandarin. And then some of the boys, uh, for example, Xu uh, Jiayou, uh, he might also speak Shanghainese, you know, like they, however, at that time, there was no unified translation system to translate their pronunciation. Now we are just talking about the pronunciation because we there's no way they can translate the characters into into English. We have to somehow translate the pronunciation into English. Well, so that's the first part of difficulty is <laughs> about the pronunciation of the names. And the second part is they have so many names. <laughs> they have their family name, they have their given name, they have also have their courtesy name, and then they have also have names that they give to themselves. And some of them also have um, their unique English name. And then, so it's it, sometimes it becomes hard to to know who who is actually who. There are other difficulties such as uh, understanding the language because at that time when they write letters, they use classic Chinese, which is a lot more simplified than and different from the speaking Chinese that modern people speak. And I guess this question is um, for Karen, but also, I mean, both of you can answer this, but in in translating these letters, what did it add to your particular understanding or like the general understanding of the Chinese educational mission? Because, you know, from my former job working in the research center at CHS, I know that those um, materials were very popular. Scholars have come to look at them, you know, many, many times. I remember uh, pulling those from the stacks for people to look at, but now you have this addition to them, this additional material. Has this changed at all your our understanding of the mission? Absolutely. The first person, really personal and intimate reflections that we have are often written by the students after they've grown up after they maybe retired from uh, service, et cetera. So these are memories looking back decades later for the first time. And as far as we know, these are the only first person uh, personal letters written in the moment when someone is a student. So we get letters in English and Chinese, and we have letters to and from CEM staff, from a host family to the CEM staff. We have letters from this uh, student to his families, to his friends in China and in the United States, you know, to his family back home in China, as well as his two younger brothers who attended school in Clinton, Connecticut. This is a full, well-rounded, uh, you know, view of someone's slice of life for several years. And you know, we get those marvelous letters like from Trigaya's older brothers who are his guardians. And, you know, they say the things like study hard, 
don't waste money, think before you act. And, you know, when we read these things, we're like, oh my gosh, (laughs) my parents say these things. I say these things to my kids and it becomes truly relatable. And we have uh, letters from Trigayo to and from his friends too, where they talk about their loneliness, their desire to see each other, or even just things that are truly relatable now, like wanting to, you know, see pretty girls, which is what one letter actually talks about and how, you know, they talk about things like their allowances and, 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 uh, you know, activities they're doing. And like Henry found some really, I I think like, uh, um, uh, words and concepts that will be, you know, actually really contributing to a larger meaning of these, uh, the boys experiences as well as language. For example, I think Henry could talk about this, finding out like how they referred to Hartford because there was no word for Hartford or Connecticut back then. And, um, maybe we could share the story about how you translated the word for skiing. And, you know, so we get this really rich, uh, well-rounded perspective of, understanding Trigayo and a personal CEM experience. I want to hear about the skiing. (laughs) Please tell me. And also Hartford. (laughs) Right. So these, they had to essentially make up a word to reference Hartford in Connecticut. Tell me more. I'll start by, I'll start from the the skiing one. Uh, For a long time, I, the, I saw two characters with, which basically means making friends with snow and uh, I just don't understand what that means. And uh, at first I thought that was a, maybe that's a friend's name called Snow in Chinese because it's kind of common. And then, it, but it doesn't make sense. You know, the whole sentence just won't translate, you know, with that two characters miss, uh, uh, that I don't understand. And for a long time, I just don't know what happened. And then one day I was reading that, uh, that letter. And then I noticed that in the second part of the paragraph, Jiayu said, does it hurt on your butt or something like that, you know? <laughs> and then I started to realize, oh, okay, that's probably some kind of skiing or or, or snowboarding, you know, activities like that. So during the long winters of, uh, you know, Connecticut, they must have fun, you know, doing activities like that. And with that being translated as, as skiing or, 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 or uh, snowboarding, you know, that's something that totally makes sense to us. So these are things probably that didn't exist in their hometown because they all came from the south part of China where they can barely see snows, you know? And then they have to somehow make up words to represent that activity. It's, it's probably some of, the, some of the experiences that more than foreign students have to do, you know, when they came to uh, uh, America as well. And then the other example is... Uh, the word uh, Hartford. And for me, again, you know, those are just two characters for a long time. This doesn't make sense to me at all. But these two characters are keep uh, being used everywhere to indicate a location. And for a while, I thought that got, that's got to be a location, you know, somewhere maybe in Japan or in San Francisco, because that those are the two stops that they stop by whenever they have to go back and forth between uh, between China and the, and the U.S., but then it doesn't make sense because there is no way they can finish the trip, you know, based on uh, the conversations in the letter. And then the two characters deviate sometimes. You know, sometimes they would add a little, uh, little character on the on the left part on the left part of the character, indicating that this is something related to pronunciations because they would add a character indicating the mouth. Uh, so, so I started to think, you know, this must relate to 
something, uh, some some phonetic translation of a location. And one day I was talking with a friend who actually speaks Cantonese, and then I showed him the two characters, and I asked him how to pronounce those in Cantonese, and then he told me it pronounced heartful, heartful. So now everything started to, to you know, to connect, and all of a sudden I realized, okay, the reason why this heartful is being mentioned everywhere is because it's Hartford. <laughs> Other stories that Karen hasn't mentioned uh, is uh, we discovered there is a network of um, people of a Chinese descent, uh, and in, during the latter, you know, some of the boys we did not find their names in the C uh, Chinese Education Mission uh, program, but we noticed that they have somehow built connections, you know, with the boys in the program. So uh, that tells us, you know, there are probably a decent size of uh, uh, Chinese immigrant, you know, in this area, although it is not uh, uh, well documented or well known. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. So that's fascinating. So through these letters, you're finding evidence that there are other Chinese people or Chinese people of Chinese descent living in Southern New England that maybe just histories of the region have not really picked up on simply through yeah. finding. That's amazing. So that's a field, obviously, like an area for further research. If anyone who's listening, you know, is looking to do a thesis on something, that's really, that's really amazing. Trying to put yourself in the mindset of, you know, an, an adolescent boy who has traveled across the globe is living in a place with strange people, a strange climate, wearing perhaps clothes that they're not accustomed to, eating food they're not accustomed to, and, you know, without the ability to communicate with any kind of speed with their their family back home. They can write letters, of course, right? But, you know, you can't pick up a phone. You can't hear those voices. You can't, you know, there's certainly not like texting or social media. Did the letters give you any sense into the boy's sort of emotional or mental state? Or or is that something that just, that they would not have felt it was appropriate to talk about? I mean, I certainly seems to me that the boys who got picked to go on this journey felt the weight of what they were expected to do and understood that there was a lot, that there were a lot of expectations riding on them. And so I wonder if to lament and say, I miss home, I miss you, I miss all of you would have been considered sort of weak or whining or, you know, I, I'm just curious about that. It's, uh, so first of all, the way Chinese people explain, uh, express love is always in a, is indirect or very subtle way. The first letter or the first document I read when I was opening, when I opened that box uh, from Karen was a poem that Jiayu sent back home. So in that in that letter, he wrote nothing about what he did or what he studied or how hard it, 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 it was for him, but a poem that he was probably forced to memorize and recite 
And in fact, I was forced to, to, to do the same thing, or I was asked by my parents to do the same thing when I was a little boy. Talking about, um, basically, if I were to translate this, the second part of the poem, is if family and friends ask me about my situation, just tell them my heart is still as pure as the ice in a jade pot, untarnished by the word fame and uh, uh, misfortunes and things like that. So he was trying to tell his parents or his family members back at home that he's, although it, it might be hard for him, and it, it is. And in fact, we see letters between him and his friends, you know, talking about how much he struggled in studying, in, 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 in uh, getting used to the new uh, environment. But he mentioned nothing about that to his uh, family members back at home. And in fact, he told them that I will do my best uh, to uh, meet that expectation. So that really uh, hits home, you know, when I saw when I saw that because that was the same thing I did, you know, when I was sent to study in the United States. Although I was not a teenager boy, I was in, in my early twenties, but still, you know, I was trying to tell my parents about all the good news and saving the bad news to myself. I think the one that I remember the most, uh, Henry, and you could chime in for, and talk more about this one too, are the autograph books uh, where we at the CHS, we hold two autograph books that belong to the students. And, you know, autograph books were incredibly popular in 19th century, like women, men, children of all ages uh, shared, had autograph books, had people write in them, share sentiments, et cetera. And in one of the books, uh, the two boys clearly had met, like one lived in Springfield and the other lived in Hartford. They had visited each other in Springfield and, and then were separating, you know, one was going back home to Hartford. And the poem that one person wrote is just heart rendering, like how you could sense that sorrow at seeing your friend go you know, they have their own friends. These boys made friends uh, within their own communities and with classmates. But there is something very deep and uh, precious about connecting with someone who has all of your own experiences and understands what you're also going through and speaks your language, et cetera. And I was wondering, Henry, if you could talk more about that one. The one about being a lonely, like the only bird or lonely bird in a, a lonely tree and my tears are dripping as the rain or snow begins to fall. That one, yeah. So in uh, so I'm gonna read uh, read the translation, a poem written by Wu Yingke, one of the Chinese boys on uh, Huang Kaijia's uh, autographic book, and he said, uh, "It started to snow. In the falling snow, I started this poem. Meanwhile, my tears falling on the clothes." There is a lonely tree with a lonely bird standing on top of it. The morning dew quickly dampens the flowers of the tree. Looking at the bright moon tonight, I don't know whose family the fall will land on. So you, you see, he didn't mention anything about, oh, I'm going to miss you, or you are going to go far away. We probably won't be able to see each other for uh, a couple of years. But you feel that sorrow, that sadness, you know, that is everywhere in this poem. Yeah. It's striking me that, you know, this is the kind of thing that like quoting poetry, it makes me think of like a modern day emo teenager kind of quoting like 
song lyrics to express their feelings, right? And I'm not going to pretend I never did anything like that when I was 16 or 17. <laughs> like, oh man, this song, it's so deep, man. <laughs> right? <laughs> it, it is actually exactly the same because the poem at that time is not, is not designed to be read. It's designed to be sing out loud. So it is, it is actually the songs, but it, it but it, it is the tradition that um, they were taught when uh, growing up. In fact, I'm still doing that nowadays, you know, to my child, to my uh, child. And then uh, that's the way uh, my parents taught me growing up as well. <laughs> I think that it was to be expected that the boys of the mission would experience loneliness and sadness at being separated from their families and their home. But this story is also a story about thriving. It's about thriving in a new in a new place. It's about adapting. Tell me a little bit about how the boys adapted. What were some aspects of Connecticut of American life that they seem to really take to? And how did that um, serve them later on in life? It is in many ways a success story. I think that although that mission ended short of its um, length of years, the target length of years, it nevertheless uh, showed the benefits and the rewards of collaborating between two countries. And, and these boys did have that hard work of bridging cultures, of, of learning uh, you know, two languages and learning to fit into two cultures, et cetera. But these boys did so well in school. They have, um, you know, their classmates wrote fondly of them. So they definitely made friends and strong connections within their communities. We have, you know, records of how these students succeeded so well in school, you know, taking prizes for, because not only did these boys learn English, many also studied uh Latin and Greek, because that was or prerequisites. It was assumed, for for example, that if you were going to attend Yale, that you would uh, be well versed uh, and be able to translate and uh, read, uh, you know, Latin and Greek. Just even entering uh, college, so we see them taking home prizes for orations or spelling or in in different subjects, and they also excelled in sports. We see them on baseball teams, football teams. Uh, Chung Man Yu, for example, was a coxswain who helped lead uh, the Yale crew team to victory uh, over Harvard. And so in many ways, they, you know, blossomed during their formative years here. You mentioned that the mission ended earlier than it was expected to. So let's explore that part of the story. Why did it end earlier? And what happened to the boys when the mission ended? Yeah, so from uh, the Qing, uh, from, from the Chinese part, um, there has been uh, reporting saying, you know, the boys are being too Americanized. You know, some of them, cut their queues you know that's that's a big no-no especially in uh, Qing dynasty and some of them even uh, adopt a Christianity uh, so it's just something that the Qing government feel like uh, they are be- they are becoming too uh, Americanized to help the Chinese government to maintain uh, their control over the country uh, so that was the main reason that the program was eventually defunded and all the boys were being called back. 
uh, to China. And when they return to China, does that American education prove to have been a benefit to them? And how so? Because I would imagine that if the mission's been disbanded because they're thought of they're becoming too Americanized, there may have been some suspicion about them when they returned, right? Is there some reluctance to take them into, you know, positions in the government, for example, because they're not sufficiently Chinese? That that's, That is exactly right. In the long term, you know, if we look at their individual trajectory in life, they did uh, become successful. But in the short term, as soon as they went back to China, uh, in fact, they, they went back to Shanghai, they were not treated well. Uh, for the first couple months, as far as I recall, they were actually put into custody or put into jail just because they dress differently, they uh, speak differently, they were not educated, you know, by the traditional Chinese education system, although they took some of the classes here, you know, at Hartford, uh, but they were just treated as, um, I would say, non-Chinese, you know, but later on, a lot of the officials find them, these are the ones that has international horizon. They understand English. They know how to communicate with the, not just Americans, you know, with the, the all Western countries and knowing uh, and also well educated. You know, they actually uh, started to get a lot better positions, you know, in the, in the, in the government. Um, and then from there, they started to thrive and then uh, achieve higher goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Chinese government were forced to change and started to open up at that time. On, on the other hand, I do think that uh, uh, the, the boys are kind of changing themselves as, as well, trying to re, I don't know, I mean, uh, how, how should I put that? To become Chinese again? I mean, this would be, because if if we look at some of the old pictures uh, that they left for us, uh, the boys they dress differently when 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 they first went back to China, and then they later on when when they get older, you cannot tell that they are any Westernized or Americanized anymore. They have they all have their cues. They all have they dress their Chinese uh, clothing. So. To me, I feel like there, there, there must be a process for them to to readapt to the system that they um, they were raised. I remember one of the the boys end up going back to the United States, uh, but it was a difficult time for him as well because the the two countries was in or were in bad relationship. So he wrote about his feeling that he's feeling not Chinese and not American. And he couldn't really find his identity at that time. Did any of the boys maintain relationships with the families and friends, the families they'd lived with back in Connecticut and the friends they'd made? Yeah, we, we see letters of them, you know, still international letters, you know, going back and forth between uh, the host family and, and the boys. And in fact, some of the connections are maintained for generations. Um, so uh, one of the, the boy who actually became foreign minister of, uh, of China, Liang Tongyan, his son, Liang Cheng, was sent back to, to New England, to, to Connecticut uh, for education as well. And then the family friendship connected for uh, multiple generations. So at the CHS, we hold letters between Liang Tongyan, uh, Liang Tongyan's family and uh, his 
you know, high school and college friend, Martin Wells. So the fathers were friends, their sons were friends. And uh, so much so that uh, Liang Tunyan's son, uh, Che Chang, you know, he was friends with Martin Wells' son, Roger, and they were so close that uh, uh, Che Chang uh, named his own son after his best uh, friend in America and became Roger Liang. And we have like 40 years of correspondence between these two families. One of the things that I find really interesting about this particular uh, story when we had the opening reception for the Journeys exhibition to see um, descendants of the uh, mission, uh, Chinese Educational Mission Boys come and to see the interest. It feels like a story that is still so much lived. There are hundreds of people out there who know about the, the fact that their ancestor participated in this. It's a story that's very much alive. And Henry, that really kind of takes us back to your experience in being, you know, a, an international student in the United States and feeling so connected to this particular story that it induced you to, I'm going to, I'm going to take a little driving tour of Hartford and see what I can find. Um, I find that so remarkable and so beautiful. And I don't know if maybe we can end by you telling us a little bit about how that legacy endures. Yeah, I think um, I was there that day when seeing this exhibition was was able to reconnect the descendants with the host family. And I remember Karen said, Karen was recognizing the host families for being there. Or maybe that was Rob, you know, the CEO uh, of CHS, you know, was recognizing the, uh, the host family uh, descendants for being there. And I turned back to them and I say, Thank you for hosting us. I, I, I want to say them, you know, uh, because I, like I said earlier, I feel like I'm part of the C, uh, the Chinese boys, you know, who study in America. This country or this society that opens its arm, you know, to all the foreign students globally and having us to study here, uh, we really appreciate this opportunity. And I, and I, I also think that because of uh, this kind of appreciation, and also because of the power of this nation to embrace all the talents globally, and that's how um, that that is what make America a great country, and that we we need to continue to do so, and not saying no or start to build walls. Well, thank you both for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. The exhibition Journeys, Boys of the Chinese Educational Mission, will be on view at the Connecticut Struggle Society through July. Or you can take a 3D tour, available online at chs.org. Keep an eye on upcoming programming related to this topic at CHS this spring. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Natalie Belanger, museum educator at the Connecticut Historical Society, and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media at highwattagemedia.com. Please join us in two weeks for a new episode on Grading the Nutmeg. This is Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored.